listening to In Tune, a podcast series featuring equity research analysts from BMO Capital Markets. Our shows explore key emerging themes, trends, and issues which are important to our institutional clients globally. On this episode of In Tune, we bring you our fireside chat, recorded on Tuesday, March 14th, 2023, between Sheila Baer former chair of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or the FDIC, and two of our BMO Equity Research Financial Analysts, Saurabh Movahidi, Canadian Bank Analyst, and James Fotheringham, U.S. Financials Analyst. I'm Camilla Sutton, Head of Equity Research for Canada in the UK, and I think you will find this a thorough conversation on the developments and response to what has unfolded at Silicon Valley Bank. Good afternoon, everyone, and, and thank you for joining this afternoon's conference call. I'm James Fotheringham, U.S. Financials Analyst at BMO Capital Markets in New York. I'm here with my great colleague, Saurabh Mobahedi, who covers the Canadian banks for our Toronto office, and together we are just delighted to have Sheila Baer here with us for a 45-minute discussion entitled Understanding the Silicon Valley Bank Failure. As I'm sure you all know, Sheila Baer is a former chair of the U.S. Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, better known as the FDIC, and a senior fellow at the Center for Financial Stability. Sheila helped to shepherd the U.S. banking system through its darkest days during the great financial crisis. Consequently, she maintains a very influential voice as it pertains to the development of bank regulation, especially during times of crisis. So it goes without saying that we are deeply appreciative for her being with us today to talk about what the heck happened over the past couple of days, the policy responses to what happened, and the eventual implications of those policy responses for banks in the United States, Canada, and beyond. Sheila, thanks so much for giving us this time. Well, thanks for having me. Excellent. Let's just, if it's okay with you, let's, let's jump right into questions. Okay. And many thanks to all of you listening uh, who submitted your questions uh, earlier today. So, Sheila, the, the past few days have featured U.S. bank runs, bank failures, the collapse of, of broader bank valuations, and, and costly policy responses from bank regulators. How did we get here? How did this happen? Well, I, I do think uh, there's a bit of an overreaction here. I mean, Silicon Valley Bank was an unusual bank. So it's a $200 billion bank, not insignificant, but in a $23 trillion banking industry, not something I would consider a systemic at all. And it had some unusual um, features. It had a very uh, high reliance of uninsured deposits. It was very concentrated in a, you know, kind of an incestuous community of VCs and their portfolio companies. They all talked to each other and listened to each other. And the word uh, spread pretty fast once uh, some of them started pulling uh, pulling their uninsured deposits out. It was rapid growth. Um, it, it did not. It, it made ill-advised investments in long-term, uh, longer-term uh, government-backed bonds and uh, mortgage-backed securities, and amazingly didn't manage the interest rate risk, even though everybody knew <laughs> interest rates were going up. So uh, they, I assume, they thought they could hold them to maturity, and, and obviously couldn't when the deposit withdrawals started. So I, I, I think there's some unusual things about this bank that doesn't suggest to me that it, it's, it's reflective of anything any broader problems in the banking system. And I do, I wrote a piece for FT this morning where I, I did take issue somewhat with the systemic risk designation for this and a smaller, even smaller bank signature um, because it's not clear to me. I think systemic risk determination should be really, you know, 
things that matter <laughs> throughout the system. And it wasn't at all clear to me that that was the case uh, in, in the in the, uh, in the instance of these two failures. And if, if it was a broader problem, then they should really explore uh, there's fast track authority to uh, get for the FDIC to get approval for a broader backstop for uninsured accounts. Uh, that's really what they should explore, not these kind of one-offs. And I mean, in my view, inappropriate use of the systemic, systemic risk designation. Um, so I, so yeah. the good is, I, I don't think there's broader problems with the economy, the banking system. I think this is an overreaction. The, uh, the, the you know things are seem to be calming down now. I think that's uh, that's really due to the Fed's new lending facility, where if you are holding a lot of um, you know um, securities that have lost market value because of rising interest rates, you can post them as collateral, get their full value in, a, in an up to one year loan at a not bad interest rate. And so I think that the ability to access liquidity without having to take marks on these securities that otherwise have lost market value. I think that's the market's taking some confidence uh, in that, so that is helping. Yep, we all saw your FT op-ed today, perfectly timed. Thank you for that, and we'd encourage anyone who didn't see it to take a look at it for uh, at FT.com. Um, and and I, I totally understand and respect your view. Um, in terms of the, the responses to, to, to the events, just to detail it um, and, and go through some of the things you said, the U.S. government has assured all deposits at the banks that failed. It introduced this new liquidity facility uh, that you referenced that's now available to all banks, and it provided a blanket commitment to address any further liquidity problems. Now, what I want to know is, is is that enough to stem the bank runs? And and what, what do you think would have happened if, if none of these policy responses had been taken? Right. So I'm not sure. I think if uh, I think it's not clear to me that uh, we would have had a problem. I think it's unfortunate that the FDIC wasn't brought in earlier to be able to market this bank and sell it uh, before they had to uh, close it. That was the procedure we used in the vast majority of, of failures um, that we about 400 that we handled under my tenure. They, it was rushed. They didn't have a chance to do that, and so they had to react quickly. And I understand decisions can be. Uh, Stuff in that time frame, but I do. These were not systemic banks. Um, these were, it, there was no need to, you know, the uninsured depositors. I just, it's just, I, I can't believe that anybody would think, unless there's something really, really wrong with our banking system, and I don't think there is, why the uninsured depositors at two mid-sized banks couldn't take, a, you know, a 10, 15 percent, probably at most, haircut on their uninsured deposits. We had to make have this extraordinary procedure. As I said, I, I think the liquidity facility, um, it did do a lot to staunch any kind of uh, jitters around banks that other banks that might be confronting this unique, well, not a unique problem, but the problem that uh, uh, SCB confronted with unmanaged interest rate risk on a, on a portfolio of securities that have lost market value because of rising interest rates. So I, but I saw some private analysts who had been looking through those and even the number of banks that arguing that situation was not a great number. And here again, the liquidity facility is, is going to be helping them out. Uh, so I'm mixed on that. That's providing system stability, but my guess is BMO and most of the other banks listening here have been managing your interest rate risk. So good for you and taking marks when you should. <laughs> good for you. We're going to be bailing out the others. <laughs> but uh, for, for overall stability purposes, it's probably a good thing that the Fed opened that facility. You know, you, you, you've made it clear, Sheila, that uh, in your opinion, the systemic provisions probably shouldn't have 
they didn't apply here. Uh, I, I guess, uh, can you just just talk a little bit about uh, why or wh why would the regulators have overstepped, I guess, in your opinion? Um, uh, what could they have done differently? And if there are any unintended consequences uh, that you can mm -hmm. think about uh, yeah. from this policy response? Well, well they, they did. I think, you know, I think the Fed facilities probably was much more effective, I think, in staunching deposit withdrawals. The uh, doing a systemic risk determination for two banks doesn't really help the other banks. And I think the early response to this was actually we saw even more deposit withdrawal pressure on some other regional banks in the U.S., because people were, you know, confused. They were, you know, what's the systemic risk? You know, what what else is going on here? So, uh, I, 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 it, it, again, it's I think just an orderly following their usual procedures, uh, announcing an advanced dividend for the uninsured deposits, which is what we always did when we had to when we couldn't mostly we could sell them, but when we didn't, we did a, a, an immediate dividend of some percentage of the uninsured, where we were confident we would have recoveries to cover that which helped tide over the uninsured with their cash needs. And uh, I think following the FDIC's normal procedures, perhaps combined with the announcement of this facility, would have been fine. But you, we've set a dangerous precedent here. A systemic risk, so are, is everybody 100 billion and above systemic now? And then what happens to the community banks? Are, is it billion dollar bank systemic? What about their uninsured deposits? These one-off you know, bailouts, for individual institutions create all sorts of distortions and expectations that I think are, are potentially undermine the banks that are not beneficiaries of that special, you know, backstop behind uninsured deposits, uh, but also creates, you know, could impact uh, market discipline and make uh, banks be even more relaxed. Uh, you know, if, if you're a weekly managed bank already, oh, well, the FGIC is going to bail me out. You know, it's going to be one or the other. It's going to be uncertainty or an assumption. The, of the bailout, that's what we saw with the uh, Lehman Brothers situation when Bear Stearns was, was bailed out so early. So, again, I think the systemic risk determination in, in not following the rules and giving certain banks special deals because supposedly they're systemic, I think that's a terribly dangerous precedent. And I, I know I can only assume that, you know, this is not a decision by the FDIC. It was the FDIC, the Fed, the Treasury Secretary, and the President all coming together, which which kind of underscores why <laughs> this is only supposed to be used in extraordinary circumstances. Uh, but I'm scratching my head. I don't think it was necessary. Uh, I, I hope we don't see any more of this. Um, but again, they've set up the expectation, which is going to create even more pressure to do bailouts later on. So, so just following that logic, now that now that assurance has been made to, um, to all depositors at SBB and Signature Bank, do you, do you now consider U.S. bank deposits across the system is essentially insured. That is, should we take it as a given that, that other bank failures that may or may no. not come will have the same FDIC no. insurance guarantee as the two that fail? No, I don't. I don't take it as a given at all. Uh, they, they've got to grow. No, they didn't do that. They gave two banks a special deal, and to do any, if they think we're going to continue to have uninsured deposit runs, and, and uh, maybe we won't. The Fed facility may be enough. I'm hoping and praying will be enough to stabilize it. But if they think uninsured uninsured deposit runs, as opposed to individual banks, but uninsured deposit runs are a systemic risk, there is a fast-track procedure. They can go to Congress, get approval to provide a broad temporary backstop for uninsured accounts. 
at least for transaction accounts, and I think that's what they should do. Uh, no, there's no guarantee. If that's if that's the the, the perception they were trying to create, uh, I don't know if that's the case at all. Uh, and I don't think the markets or depositors thought that was the case this morning. And again, I think the Fed facility was what uh, calmed things down. Uh, these are one-off. You know, you've got to get. So just to be clear, any other banks that think they're going to get this special deal, you've got to get two-thirds of the FDIC, two-thirds of the Fed, the Treasury Secretary and the president to all agree that your uninsured depositors need to be bailed out. There's no guarantee that's going to happen anymore or for all banks. I don't think it will. And, and again, what about, are they going to do it for a $5 billion bank, a $10 billion bank, a $500 million bank? There may be small banks that have uh, issues with, with the uninsured deposit withdrawals. I don't think, you know, I think that it was hard enough to do it for a 200 and $100 billion bank to make a systemic determination. So no, there's no guarantee, and uh, and so if people have that perception, I, I don't think it's accurate. And again, the Fed facility is there for liquidity now. If you've got a lot of uh, unmarked losses on your uh, on your securities, you can you can post them and and uh, get a, a fully collateralized loan without haircut. But but uh, and that helps. That will help the liquidity. But no, I, I don't. I, I think people would be ill-advised to think that everybody's going to get bailed out now, one by one by one, with a systemic risk determination. I don't think that's realistic. Sheila, you've mentioned, I think, several times that, about the effectiveness and the relevance of the bank term funding program. Um, you know, a bit of a cynical question, I guess. Is there going to be a stigma associated with banks that end up using yeah. it? Should there be stigma? And what well, sort of disclosures... You know, do you think will be required no. to be provided? Well, that's that's a good question, and probably your view on that will depend on whether you think you're going to have to use it or not, right? So, so, um, <laughs> so I think the banks that won't have to use it, they should wear that as a badge of honor. That shows that they really manage their interest rate risk well. If they do have to use it, well, so be it. Maybe that's the uh, what's that's the uh, we just do that and look the other way for system stability. Um, I don't know. I think that's a really tough question. I would say at a minimum, and I said this in my op-ed and I've been saying it all day, at a minimum, the Fed and other bank examiners should go in there and examine if if these banks, which, which large, you know, large amounts of, of unmarked, because if, if they could be in the whole maturity if they're, in, if they're in AFS too, if they're a smaller bank, they don't have to mark them. So, the securities that have lost value that have not yet been marked for accounting purposes, if they had to sell those uh, in an emergency basis, would they have the capital to absorb it? And if they don't, then, then have some good conversations with them about increasing their capital or, or uh, taking other uh, corrective steps. So a, a minimum, and that can be part of a confidential supervisory process, but a minimum, I think, uh, the bank regulators should do that, and I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll dodge it and defer to the Fed about what kind of public disclosure <laughs> they want to make around usage of the facility. Fair enough. Um, can we sort of move the the topic to moral hazard? Um, you know, the financial system has been bailed out now a few times in recent memory, so, uh, you know, GFC, pandemic, and now this liquidity crisis. Now, when it comes to bank deposits in particular, where does where do you think personal responsibility starts and where do you think personal responsibility stops with respect to moral hazard? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, we have deposit insurance limits for a reason. There, there's some people who don't like deposit insurance at all, they say, because of the moral hazard. I, I don't buy that. I think for households, 
you know, regular Main Street households, they don't have the ability or the time or the acumen to be going in there and looking at bank's financial statements and things. So we need to give them some assurance and peace of mind that they're going to be protected no matter what. And that's what how we calibrate the insured deposit limits to, to, to protect those Main Street households. And even in wealthy ones, too, I might add, because there are a lot of different ways in terms of how you structure your accounts to get way more than 250000 And, of course, they have these deposit exchange programs where even community banks can offer a lot more. So so there are a lot of ways where you can get more coverage than that already. Um, but I do think you need some market discipline, and I certainly think ultra-rich venture capitalists <laughs> be expected to know what you know kind of bank they're dealing with and what kind of risk that bank is taking and not you know then then all of a sudden close the bank uh which you know it might have it was mismanaged but i think it still has some good assets and a fairly valuable valuable franchise if it hadn't been for the deposit run i think they could have made it so it it was somewhat self-destructive um but i do think there there should be uh deposit insurance limits i i think there is an argument for uh unlimited or at least higher limits on transaction accounts because with transaction accounts we saw this uh, during the crisis with community banks in particular they were losing their business accounts their institutional accounts that were used for payroll and operational expenses they have to go above their insured deposit limits right 250,000 is going to give you enough you know liquidity to to manage your cash flow needs if you've got a, a business organization of any of any size so the community banks were losing those deposits uh, during the crisis to the bigger banks, and so we instituted something called a, a temporary um, transaction account guarantee. It's a temporary program. We provided unlimited insurance to transaction accounts that did not yield interest that were just used for uh, for you know payment processing, and it worked. It stabilized the uh, the deposits in the community bank and uh, and worked very well. And much to my surprise, <laughs> then the the uh, Congress. I'll be I'll be honest with you. I think this is through the lobbying of the of the money market industry. And, and if any of you are listening, <laughs> you tell me and shame on you if you're involved. But anyway, Congress uh, ordered the FDIC to not do a program like that anymore without congressional authorization. And then they they but they provide a streamlined procedure for it, as I said earlier. So I, I think that's something. If if we see run pickups, uh, it, it, deposit runs accelerate. That's really something the FDIC should do, and I think if if Treasury and the President uh, and the Fed supported them, I can only imagine the Congress would be able to give them that authority uh, pretty quickly. So a temporary liquidity program like that, the flexibility to institute something system-wide, I think makes sense. I, I regret that the Congress took it away from the FDIC to begin with. I think there can be a larger debate about whether we should just lift at least for transaction accounts, lift uh, deposit limits. I believe Japan does provide unlimited uh, insurance for their transaction accounts. If it did years ago when I was over there and discussing this issue with them. Um, so I think it's a, it's a conversation to have. And who knows, maybe this, this these incidents will help uh, will help precipitate that. Sheila, just as we think about the insured, uninsured deposit, I guess, uh, cap, uh, what about just the mix of uninsured deposits as uh, as the funding profile of uh, as part of the funding kind of base of the banks? Uh, should there be a cap on the proportion of yeah. uninsured deposits, let's say as a percentage of total deposits, for at least for the banks that uh, are part of the FDIC coverage? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think uh, you know, rentable liabilities are something generally that I believe the FDIC, FDIC looks at in setting its risk-based premiums. But you know, maybe more. I think the you know the change 
the adjustment in premiums is not great. So maybe that's some that would be one way to do it to just charge very very high premiums for for banks that have uh, you know run what I would call runnable liabilities. Even even retail even insured can can can, can run if uh, if it's all just based on yield. And that we certainly saw that with these rapid growth uh, banks. During the great financial crisis, they were fairly new banks, and they'd just gotten broker deposits and, and levered up on commercial real estate, and that turned ugly pretty fast. So maybe we should think more about runnable liabilities, but that is already factored into deposit insurance premiums, I believe, that maybe should be more explicitly so. And, yeah, I think the percentage of, of um, uninsured deposits by themselves are not bad. They're good. I mean, you know, businesses with large accounts need, need bank accounts, too, so you want to uh, attract that business, but uh, but maybe some some thought about uh, putting putting some uh, standards around the mix is a good idea, or at least you know do more to to adjust premiums for insurance deposit insurance. You mentioned deposit exchanges in this regard. Could you just ex- explain a little bit more how you think these deposit networks like Intrify um, can play yeah. a role in in distributing deposits among banks according to these insurance limits? Right. Well, to be honest, I've never been a fan of those. I, th- I, 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 I'm glad that they provide, they help make the uh, the smaller banks more competitive with the the bigger, you know, so-called big to fail banks. But it, there is, it's a bit of a free ride on the FDIC's uh, deposit insurance fund, and so for that reason, um, I think I, I'm troubled by it. I think you know, if we're going to have those programs, that we better, they should be, frankly, they should be paying a fee to the FDIC too, because it really is just a <laughs> it's just a free ride <laughs> on the deposit guarantees that that that, that the government and the, well, the the the, uh, the actually the banking system provides because the banking system capitalizes the deposit insurance fund. But they're here; they're here to stay. I don't think they're going anywhere. I mean, ironically, if if we did limit, uh, you know, raise deposit insurance caps, and that would probably kill that industry off. So um, there, that's something to think of as well. Um, but I guess I can live with them. I, I do think they should pay something uh, to the deposit, to the FDIC, because it's pretty much a free ride. Understood. How do you feel about the um, the current capital treatment for securities held on banks' balance sheets? Now that interest yeah. rates have moved higher, some U.S. regional banks have, you know, implied marks on their held maturity securities portfolios in excess of tangible common equity. And this must be a problem. I mean, should there be a change to the capital policy as it relates to yeah. marking to market bond portfolios and or the treatment of AOCI and regulatory capital? And similarly, do you think the, the solvency risk implied by these securities books, as evidenced by the recent bank failures, are adequately considered in RWAs in terms of their current asset risk weightings? Yeah, well, you, there's a lot to unpack. <laughs> a lot to unpack. In yeah. So I think securities that are in AFS should be marked, period, full stop. I don't, you know, I think with, with holds of maturity, I, I think maybe not because um, these are somewhat un, unusual times, right? So, I mean, the Fed's increased interest rates from 0.08% at the beginning of, to what is it, just north of 45 now. So that's about, I figured it out, it's about 6,000% six, increase. So th- this this is extremely rapid, uh, you know, 4.5 by itself doesn't sound high, but in relation to where they started, this has been highly aggressive. So I think we are in, un- in unusual times making this more of an issue than it ordinarily would be. Uh, certainly anything in AFS should be marked. If HTM, I can debate it both ways, but if they don't make them market, then, then 
as part of the supervisory process, at least, examiners should be looking to see if they had to sell them, what would the hit of capital be? I also think that just generally, you know, the, the regulatory incentives that regulators give banks to buy government-backed securities are pretty powerful, right? There's zero risk weight on treasuries, pretty low on, on GSE-backed uh, bonds and MBS. Um you know, the very favorable treatment under the liquidity rules. So they're they're pretty much treat, treated as zero to very low risk. When really, when interest rates rise, they are not. They are not. So perhaps reassessing uh, the capital requirements. Certainly, what I do hope, and apologies if some of you uh, have pushed for this, but I, you know, there's been a big effort by bank lobbyists in the U.S. to get Treasury securities out of the denominator of the leverage ratio. And I have fought that for years and continue to oppose it. And I hope now at least what's going on here with, with market losses on treasuries will help people understand, you know, it, it is there there is risk in these as well. And providing even more powerful incentives to load up on treasury securities, which you would do if there were no capital requirements at all, they could use the you know, banks could use hundred percent leverage to buy them then uh, you're really going to see banks piling into that that uh, asset class even more, which I, I don't think is good from a for safety and soundness standpoint, and I don't think it's good from the standpoint of making sure you want banks to take take some risk, right? <laughs> you want them to lend, <laughs> you want them to invite another, you know, invest in other instruments that help support the real economy. You don't you just don't want everybody piling into government. So yeah, I think there's that's uh, a great. Please go ahead. No, I didn't want to. You you go. I didn't mean to cut you off. Sorry. Well, no, I just think that that's, that might be, you know, some silver linings coming out of this, and, and this may be one, to just reassess the regulatory treatment of, of government debt. And uh, is it is it favored too much over, you know, private sector uh, credit credit provision, which, which I think it probably is. Really good point on leverage. I just wanted to catch you up on the AOCI question. Um, the option for non-systemic banks to Included or not in regulatory capital, do you think that right. that should that option should be uh, uh, you know uh, clawed back? Eliminated, yes, yes, I think that should be eliminated, yes. Let's um, um, maybe maybe it's a good time to kind of just uh, now move to a different topic. Think about the near and longer term kind of implications. Um, I guess the question I want to ask is what what happens next? Will the big banks just keep getting bigger? Is there going to be higher insurance premium, stricter regulation? Is that going to be punishing to the smaller banks disproportionately? Yeah. yeah. Will all of this mean more bank mergers maybe in the U.S. banking system, more consolidation? You know, you know after what yeah. we've seen over the last number of days, does anyone want to put any money in small banks? You know, when the big banks basically well, offer no, the same... A, it's, no, it's, it's yeah. a really good... Bailouts... Bailouts encourage uh, big banks to get bigger because the bigger you are, uh, the you know it, you were bailed out before, you're propped up, you have this too big to fail a perception, which is what you know the largest banks in the U.S. enjoy now. And you know again with what's going on now, I'm just wondering: so are we lowering that to 100 billion dollars? Anybody over 100 billion now? Is that is that going to be the market exception uh, expectation that those are going to be designated systemic and? They're uninsured are going to be protected. So if if you create that market expectation, it's definitely going to hit the smaller banks. I mean, why would anybody keep uninsured money with them 
if if they you know have a reason to believe that the FDIC is always going to protect the uninsured and the larger banks. So it's 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 uh, which is why I think I don't like bailouts. Period. But if you need to do them, do them for everybody. Because if you don't, if you pick and choose, you're gonna you're, you're gonna be distorting depositor behavior. You're gonna be punishing healthy banks that didn't do anything wrong. And uh, and so uh, yeah, I mean I think that's uh, don't do bailouts. If you have to do it, do it for everybody. Just don't choose institutions or certain size institutions to help. Well, these these bailouts, broad or narrow cost the banking center, uh, sector, um, and I'm just wondering if you could detail what what are the expected costs? What are the social dividends, if you will, to yeah. be paid by banks as yeah. a result of this latest um, bailout in terms of, yeah. you know, I'm thinking about higher insurance premiums. I'm thinking about stricter liquidity requirements, certainly higher capital requirements eventually. And then right. if you could also uh, just if, if this if there's a cost to banks from this, what proportion would you expect to be passed on to bank customers versus bank yeah. shareholders? Well, I, I I I get concerned about that too, and it gets back to this. You know, is this an unusual kind of, you know, a, a, you know, a handful of banks with these these types of characteristics, or is this a broader problem? If it's just a matter of of bad interest rate risk management by a handful of banks. I, you know, bringing down the hammer on everybody, I think is, is, uh, and I think it is, frankly, bringing down the hammer on everybody is just not really going to be productive. And so, but this gets back to the question, well, this is systemic, right? we got to go after everybody. If this is all deregulation, we deregulate the, the mid-sized banks, we got to re-regulate them again. Then, uh, then I think there's, there's going to be some, um, yeah, I think there's going to be some significant increase in regulatory costs, and I hope that doesn't happen because from what I can tell now, you know, I'm learning every day like everybody else, but what I can tell now, the regional banks and the community banks are in pretty good shape. Uh, but, but, you know, regulation has worked, and, uh, and you know, you also pile on rules on banks when maybe examiners miss something, so, you know, or in bank management, so there's got to be some personal accountability here. Sometimes people just make mistakes, and we all make mistakes, and we hopefully will, you know, hold ourselves accountable and correct our mistakes, but for, you know, human error, if you will, you know, lapses in judgment or whether or oversight, to use that as a catalyst for a whole new layer of regulation, that's not a great idea. It would be a very, very bad outcome. Uh, we've talked about some discrete areas. Um, the capital treatment of unrealized losses is one, so there are some discrete areas where I think we could improve regulation. But um, overall, I, I think the system is uh, it, it, for the smaller banks uh, and the regional banks. I think it's fine. I, before this, I was worrying way more about the non-banks and their interrelationships with the largest banks. Uh, there's not a lot of transparency there. We know these funds, these private funds use a lot of leverage. Uh, nobody's quite sure what their exposures are. And so, uh, you know, somebody asked me earlier in another uh, session, you know, what's the next shoe to drop? And I hope there are no <laughs> next shoes to drop. But if there were, I'd be looking at the non-bank sector because certainly they are dramatically impacted by the Fed's rapid increases in interest rates. And who knows how they may have been papering over that for now because, you know, we just there's just not a lot of transparency around them. 
but yeah, I mean, I, I think that's real danger, and I think it's uh, uh, important for people to be aware, of, you know, and, and I've been trying to tell people since I started, I certainly, my confidence in the regional bank sector. I think traditional regional banks perform very well during the financial crisis. They're performing well now. They're, they're, they're for the most part, they're well managed. They've got diversified deposit bases, a lot of heavily reliant on core deposits. Uh, there really isn't something that uh, there's there's no broad based problem that that uh, depositors should be aware of when it comes to regional banks. Sheila, we have uh, we obviously have clients uh, on the line and present kind of beyond the uh, the, the borders of the U.S. Uh, you know, many of us, I as a Canadian bank analyst, we would always kind of think about well, what 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 are some of the potential ripple effects of this beyond. Right. Uh, right. The U.S., uh, I guess, regional banking uh, space. You know, what what sort of stuff do you think we should be thinking about, worrying about? Yeah. Um, well, we've talked. Uh, we, we, I mean, I think their their political risk. You know, the kind of backlash risk from all of this um, is is uh, uh, going to be a problem. I think. Look, look, interest rates generally. You know, uh, interest rates go up, interest rates go down, and so independent of any drama around SVP and signature, uh, obviously deposit costs are going to go up. <laughs> you know, you're, it's, it's getting more competitive for money out there. So you have to start paying more interest on on banks are going to all banks are going to have to start paying more interest on their deposits. So that's going to compress uh, that interest margins. Uh, we may well have a recession coming. I hope we don't. Uh, I think I have said, uh, since last December, I've said the Fed should uh, hit pause on their interest rate increases because it's just been, they've done it so quickly and so dramatically. They really need to take a deep breath and assess um, what's the impact. It's not just on the financial system, but the economy generally. Um, so there's uh, there's that, and uh, if we do go into a deep recession, obviously your credit losses are going to go up significantly. I, I think and hope that can and will be avoided. But that's certainly something uh, in terms of uh, your forward thinking of, of, of banks and those who analyze banks, you know, how resilient are they in that kind of a scenario. Um, that said, I mean, higher interest rates long-term are good for traditional banks that take deposits and make loans. This era of cheap money, it was really, really hard to get a decent return on your lending. Meanwhile, if you're an investment bank with large securities portfolios, you were you were fat and happy. <laughs> you had a lot of corporate debt issuance, and they you know they inflated the financial assets you held were were going up in value. So that was a good ride, but it, it's it's unwinding now. But for traditional banking, it, it's better to have high interest rates. You know, your your margins are better, capital allocation is more disciplined. You can get some decent return on on you know your loan. Maybe you can take a little more risk with some loans, or you know taking a little more risk for small business or whatever. It's not necessarily a bad thing if it's done right. So um, yeah, I think short term uh, rising interest rates are going to certainly going to impact uh, increased deposit costs. That's something for everybody to be aware of, and, and the risk of recession is also something to make sure you're prepared for. But uh, I do think if the Fed hits pause assesses, uh, takes a breather, lets, I mean, you know, housing inflation has been such a big component of these numbers, and there's a lag, as you all know, and when, you know, the uh, housing corrects and gets into the inflation data, so I think that's what, another reason why it would be good for them to hit pause. Um, and if they wanted to tighten further instead of raising short-term rates, I guess, if, if housing doesn't cool off, they could sell some of the mortgage-backed securities 
you know, that would at least be targeted to the housing sector. And uh, certainly it would take, it would hit uh, MBS valuations even more, but now that the Fed has this facility where you can, you can bring those securities and borrow against them for full value, uh, maybe that's, that's less of an issue. Um, I mean, that's, just hypothetically down the road, if, if inflation, if housing inflation isn't coming down, that would be another option they would have without raising short-term rates, which really is putting such pressure on the yield curve and um, and, and presents much greater risk. Uh, well, it hits the entire economy. It hurt, hits credit costs everywhere and, and particularly uh, increases recession risk because of the inverted yield curve, which imperils labor markets. So um, hopefully they can hit pause and, and see, let this flow through and we can see uh, continued uh, uh, progress on inflation, and all will be good. But if if not, I really wish they would think about selling some of their portfolio instead of keeping to raise, uh, keeping on raising short-term rates. Last I checked, um, no buyers have emerged yet uh, for the the banks that have failed. Oh, Why do you think that is? That's troubling in itself. I don't know. That is troubling in itself. I, I don't, don't know. I don't have insight into that. Um, I, I don't know, um, and I'm not even going to speculate. Um, it's surprising because we had, you know, we it, 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 those franchises. It, it seems could be well. Okay, I, I won't speculate, but I, I will make an observation. Um, there were under the Obama administration, Justice Department, um, there were some lawsuits brought against banks that had bought failed banks from us basically holding them responsible for the bad conduct of the banks that they had acquired. I disagree with that then. I disagree with it now. I publicly criticized it. And I said then, and I'll say now, that that, that doesn't, does nothing but to give um, bank bidders a disincentive to buy failed banks. So if that turn, and I don't know. I don't know if that's a factor. It would probably be good for this administration to announce that, you know, you're going to have be held, or put it in paperwork, too, for the acquisition, that you'll be held harmless against any, uh, you know, uh, civil or criminal liability associated with the, with the bad conduct of, of the uh, the bank management uh, that you just acquired. Um, there may be, it may be uh, some of the drama has got people skittish, too, around all of this. Um, I think these things generally went more smoothly with them quietly and then just announced the transaction. So that might be scaring people off too. I don't know. I'm just, um, it's hard to tell. Uh, but I, I, I hope this is not uh, an indication that people are going to be reluctant to buy. Um, I do think that private equity has a role here. We allowed private, private equity to um, acquire banks well, if you're going to acquire the whole bag, you have to have a bag to acquire a bag. So we, if they if they formed, they got a, a banking charter and got approval from their primary regulator. Most of them got national charters. We allowed them to bid on failed banks. And then we put some special rules around it, lock-up periods and higher capital requirements for a certain period of years. Just, you know, because just because they didn't have a track record. And that worked pretty well. But I do think, uh, you know, private equity has got a, a role in this. And because uh, they're, you know, they're 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 distressed asset buyers. Except these are viewed as distressed institutions. They are somewhat, even though I think they've got a pretty good book of assets. Um, you need to let them come in and compete too. And there are ways you can put safeguards around that to make it to uh, make sure that the FDIC is dealing with uh, responsible buyers. Sheila, one of our clients uh, over the weekend uh, reminded me. He said that. Uh, 
we know banks die of uh, cancer in their loan book, but it's a heart attack yeah. in their treasury operations. And uh, <laughs> exactly clearly, right. it's uh, so it clearly was that. And here, and right. we've talked about some of the changes that have to come through. I'm just curious, you know, obviously there were learnings that were had out of the global financial crisis, but there was a decision uh, to be a, to apply those kind of at, uh, at different degrees of strictness, depending on the size of the institution. Right. Did, are we, uh, two questions, I suppose, are we going to see tighter or harder uh, liquidity and funding type constraints on the smaller banks that were not, uh, you know, uh, bound by the NSFR and LCR type stuff that came right. through? And then is there a chance that right. uh, the globally systemically important ones, the larger ones may also just as a result of this, for whatever reason, see higher um, supervision as well? Well, I, I think there will be higher supervision. That's not necessarily bad. I mean, obviously, every examiners and managers of all sizes of banks need to be hyper-focused on the liquidity right now, given just what's been going on. Um, and again, you know, not all small banks are virtuous, not all middle-sized or large banks are, are virtuous, but, but, but the traditional community bank is going to be have that slope. They're going to have a loan book. They're not going to have huge securities portfolios. Maybe some of them have now. They, well, I will have to admit they, they've loaded up. I mean, it was just there's so much money in the system uh, that uh, the treasury securities have uh, uh, for, for all bank sizes have those holdings have have uh, gone up quite quite a bit. But there again, with, you've got the spend facility now to help them access liquidity that they're going to need it. Um, so I I I think it'll be okay. I think will be okay, but I think banks of all sizes appropriately need to be focused on liquidity, uh, and examiners need to be too. And that can be thoughtful and constructive. It doesn't need to be uh, punitive or harsh, but it, it certainly needs to happen. Among um, among the financial systems globally, there appears to be an inverse relationship between competition and stability, and inarguably. The U.S. banking system, with its 5,000 banks, is more competitive than its international peers. Does that mean that right. it is also inherently less stable? Are, are these U.S. Yeah, bank failures so. just yeah. now now a fact yeah. of life, or should the regulator push for consolidation to become more stable as a system? Yeah. Well, that's that's more the Canadian uh, system, and you know I can argue it both ways. The Canadian system is very stable, and uh, and you've never had a major banking crisis. The U.S. banks will tell you that, that the Canadian banks free ride all of us innovators <laughs> in the U.S. That's what they say. That's not what I say. So uh, <laughs> I think that the truth is, is, is probably somewhere else. But, um, like, it's a trade-off. I do think a principles-based approach. I, I do think that regulation is, is too prescriptive, too rules-based, and, and it's inflexible. It, it, it's, it's not dynamic. It can't respond to trade, you know, changing conditions and risks the way a more principles-based framework does. And I will also say that I think I haven't dealt a lot with Canadian banking regulators. I worked with them a lot uh, during the financial crisis and on the Basel Committee um, and, and know some of them and know people who, who work with them. But just my sense is, and maybe it's because you just, you know, you have a concentrated banking system you don't have to go through these formalities of rulemaking and et cetera. I mean, if you've got a concern, the reg, you know, the bank supervisor or the regulator in Canada has a concern, they pick up the phone and call the bank and work it out, right? And I think, you know, that's the way it used to work in Paul Boker's days. 
And I, I think now, for whatever reason, bank regulators don't feel empowered to do that so much. And, you know, if you think a bank needs new capital, you got to do a rulemaking for everybody or put out guidance or something. Or just pick up the phone and call them. So, but, but my sense is you have more of that ongoing dialogue uh, between Canadian regulators and the banks that, that we don't, we don't have, see the same kind of uh, ongoing uh, interaction as before. But, you know, I, I think there are, there are real strengths in our banking system. I, I like the fact you don't have community banks. I like the fact you have community banks. I, I bank with a community bank. I also have an account with a large bank because for wires and, and some things, community banks aren't, aren't able to provide the same level of service. But I think that diversity of choice for the people in the U.S. is important. Uh, and uh, But, yeah, that means it's, it's harder to supervise them, harder to regulate them, and, and you have more bank failures. Uh, but banks fail. I just wish people wouldn't. It seems like, you know, we we had such strong education efforts with the FDIC about deposit insurance and protections, but people just always seem to be surprised. When, I'm not sure why, or a bank of any size. Uh, but it happens, and uh, you need it. If you want any kind of market discipline uh, to complement regulation, you need uh, the possibility of bank failures. And uh, regrettably, I think we've lost a lot of that with our biggest institutions now. Look, it's uh, 3.15. We've come up against our time. Uh, we want to be respectful of uh, your time and the participants. Sheila, thank you so much for sharing some of your insights and uh, really reassuring thoughts on the current situation. Um, for those of you who don't know, Sheila is also an author of children's book, Teaching Personal oh, Finance to Young Readers. <laughs> I know that Rock, Rock and Saving Shock, that's been a in the Fotheringham household, and I, I know I can't wait to see how this latest crisis features in the next book. Um, look, uh, a big thank well, you to our clients for participating in today's please. call. All of us at Demo Capital Markets, especially James and I, appreciate your uh, business and trust in involving us in your process. Uh, thank yeah. you, everyone. That's uh, that's a wrap. Thanks for having me. That was Sheila Baer, former chair of the FDIC, Zohar Mobahidi, BMO's Canadian bank analyst, and James Fotheringham, BMO's U.S. financial analyst, in a dialogue over the developments at SIVB, and it was recorded on Tuesday, March 14th. If you enjoyed this episode of BMO Equity Research's In Tune podcast, please do subscribe and rate it, as it helps more people find the podcast. Thanks for listening to Intune, presented by BMO Capital Markets Equity Research. You can subscribe to Intune on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcast providers. Or visit our website at researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com to listen to more podcasts. Until next time, thank you for tuning in. To access our full disclosures, please visit researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure.